For week after week on Thursday evenings during this COVID-19 pandemic, we clapped our NHS medics, nurses and care workers. But one group of people has gone largely unnoticed during this public health crisis, the hospital chaplains. My name is Mark Dowd and in this edition of Things Unseen, we'll be putting their work under the spotlight. Chaplains are the people who've acted as intermediaries between anxious and grieving families and their loved ones often caring not just for isolated patients who've been staring death in the face, but also for distraught and overworked medical staff. These past months, perhaps the word unprecedented is one we've got used to hearing a little too often, but the restrictions on access in hospitals due to fear of infection meant that chaplains have had to totally redefine their way of working. It's been a huge challenge that has drawn on their physical and spiritual resources. So today I'll be talking to Rahana Sadik, a woman with more than 20 years' experience of chaplaincy work at one of Europe's largest acute care hospitals, and also to Sarah Niazi, whose husband Arif was taken ill and who turned to Rahana for spiritual support. Rahana, you work at several uh, hospitals in the Birmingham area. Just give us a flavour of how life as a chaplain has been since March compared to the previous time of, of working as a chaplain? It's strange, you know, because when we were in the thick of it, you just got on with it. And you noticed how the hospital felt strange, that there were less people, of course, with visitors not being allowed in. And, of course, the fact that there were lots and lots of very, very poorly patients and that our wards were all preparing for the unknown. This virus was taking over like anything. We didn't know how many COVID patients we would have, and that preparation was going on. A lot of nervousness. A lot of the work that we initially did as chaplains was really for staff, to help the staff to be able to cope with what they needed to be able to cope with. As the days and the weeks went by, I'm just guessing, but were you on call 24-7? There must have been a real temptation to mental and physical exhaustion. Well, we were all asked whether we could increase our hours, and I certainly increased mine to almost threefold. The fact was that many of us were off either shielding or having underlying health conditions so not able to come to work. So it meant that we were very short staff, which made it even more difficult. And at the beginning, it was just about, right, I'm needed, I've got to go and do this. And we just got on with it. And we were there whenever we were called. And of course, within our multi-faith team that we have, there are more of one particular faith chaplains than there are of sort of minority faith chaplains and I think that became quite challenging as well. Were you the sole Muslim representative? I was a sole on-site Muslim chaplain at the time which was very challenging but it's amazing because I, I, I suppose the adrenaline just kicks in and you just keep on going and going and going and you just do it and chaplains are renowned for their care and their compassion and their sacrifice so we just got on with it I suppose the few of us that were there increasing our hours and just learning 
day by day about the continuous changes and the further instructions about how we had to function. So yes, we were there. We were no longer doing our normal ward rounds. Everything was basically by referrals. And there were so many of them. To this day, I I still think about all the referrals I wasn't able to meet the needs of. During this pandemic, we've seen a lot of stories of people, families being separated from their loved ones. Have you, on occasion, had to use tablets and telephones to be the, if you like, the technological intermediary Mm -hmm. between patients in beds and their distant family? Yes, I have done. And sometimes what I've done is that when it comes to doing a prayer for the patient, I've asked the family if they want to join in that prayer. So we've put them on, it's just my little work phone, we've put them on and I've said to them and described to them that I'm about to do my prayers with him and that you're there also joining in with that prayer as well for healing. And then I've switched it on and then we've all prayed together. And the family have just been incredibly grateful that while they haven't been able to be there, that they felt that they were there. A lot of the staff have said that they've never encountered so much death in such a short period of time. I'd imagine that as the time went on, you were dealing with the the, the spiritual and pastoral needs of, of the medical staff as much as the families and the patients. Yes, absolutely. And we did have medical staff that were ill with COVID as well. And we did have deaths there as well. Luckily, we also had people that recovered and went back home, which was brilliant. But yes, we were doing that. And I think one of the challenges that chaplains have is to be able to switch from one frame of mind to another and to be there for people in whatever capacity they needed. Did you feel vulnerable yourself? In what way? Well, you're there surrounded by people with COVID and you've got PP on, but, ah. you know, will it work? Will, will you be exporting yeah. this to people outside yeah. the hospital? It's interesting because actually I, I personally didn't feel so vulnerable. I felt that my trust had given us exactly the right equipment and the right instructions and we put everything in place in such a good way with donors and doffers helping us to do everything that I felt really confident and and I felt really really protected in fact I'll go as far as saying that I felt more protected in the hospital than I did when I was going home walking to my car and going out Let's turn now to one of the people that you helped during this period, Sarah. Your husband, Arif, suffered from an autoimmune condition and had been in hospital back in February. How do you think he contracted the coronavirus? Well, not 100%, but um, he was in the hospital for plasma exchange. So it meant that he was in there for over a week. And he was in a, a ward with other people. And when he was released early March, one of the family members of an inpatient phoned him to say that his brother had been moved to a side ward and he'd been showing tuberculosis-type symptoms. And when I mentioned it to my own GP, he said it's possible that he picked it up while he was in hospital because COVID wasn't an issue as such 
then. There was no um, protective clothing or anything. It was new, really. But otherwise, I don't know. And then when did you know for sure that he had contracted it? Because you two were affected, weren't you? Yes. We sort of became ill at the same time. It would have been about, what, the 19th, 20th, just before of March. He wasn't feeling well. But when he came out of hospital after plasma, he said, I can't, I'm not breathing well. It doesn't seem to have worked. And he was complaining about his breathing. But it, it got worse. And then at the same time, I started to show symptoms. And on the night of the 19th, I had to phone 111 and they sent an ambulance because he had a terrible temperature and he just couldn't breathe at all. He went into hospital at that point and you yes. were separated from him. Yes. When they came, the paramedic said it looks as if he's got the virus and they just took him away and that was it. That was his last time leaving our home. And then two days after being in hospital, on the third day, they said yes, because they did tests and he was confirmed COVID. And then how did he get on once he went into hospital? In the notes that we've had, because I requested his medical notes, it, it says about deterioration, how he's in palliative care, but we weren't told that. We used to speak to him on FaceTime and he, he seemed the same. He was still struggling because he was on oxygen 100% of the time and they increased the amount of oxygen but he wasn't getting better at all and the doctors had done x-rays and said your lungs are really full and he was on antibiotics as well but he never improved at all and your children you have three children they were yes. presumably talking to him on FaceTime as well were they yes that's the only contact you know because we weren't allowed into the hospital and sometimes my children would do a, a joint FaceTime. So we, we were all on at the same time. But mainly he, he was nodding and shaking his head because he couldn't do a lot of talking because he couldn't breathe, couldn't get his breath. And then I understand you got a pretty urgent phone call from the hospital. Well, for a few days he didn't answer his phone or his Facebook because we used to ring the hospital to get updates, but we weren't really getting any updates. And then on the morning of 30th of March, he phoned and says, the doctor wants you. And the doctor sort of said, we've done everything we can. Um, and she says, you know, we've tried. And that was just shocking news. It really was. And that's when I asked, can I come in and see him? And she went away, came back, and she said, yes, but just this once, and only me. So I did go in. And what was it like walking into the hospital in those circumstances? There was security downstairs. The hospital was really empty, um, and you had to clear it with the reception desk because the security wouldn't let me go into the lift until they'd cleared me at reception. And it was just really quiet. It was definitely... It was, not a hospital that we're used to. It was There wasn't anybody there. And then when I went upstairs, they buzzed me in. And when I went in, and he was just sitting there with his mask on, still struggling to breathe. But he did see you? Yes, he did. See, I didn't go in expecting that he was going to pass away within hours because I'd asked to see the doctor that spoke to me when I got there. And I said, what's going to happen? What are you going to do? And she says, well, 
will increase his antibiotics and see what's going to happen over the next few days. But within a few hours, he, he passed. And I was just shocked and devastated. I, I couldn't believe it. Mm. Because even though she'd said to me, we've done everything we can when I was at home, I was at the hospital within 15, 20 minutes. I didn't think it was going to be this end, to be honest. So you weren't going into the hospital resigned to, to losing him? You no. still thought there was a chance? Yes, I didn't think it was going to be my um, seeing him for the last time. I didn't think. And so you were with him throughout this time? You, you didn't leave him? Yes. No. I was there. I must have been there from about quarter past nine, 20 past nine, and he passed at two o'clock. Were you the first person to notice what had happened or were there other nurses around with you? There was nurses in the room because they were trying to change his mask over to something that was going to make him more comfortable. And there was also a young doctor next to me. And while he's sitting in the chair, while they're looking for a, they were also going to inject him with morphine. And she was looking, one was putting on the mask, one was looking for a warm spot to inject him. And I noticed that his head had dropped and I said to the nurses, something's happened to him. And, and it just went all from there. Uh, he just passed away just suddenly. How old was Arif? He was 61. He was two weeks away from his 62nd birthday. And so how is it you came to meet Rahana, the chaplain? When he did pass, the, the nurses said, uh, would you like to see a chaplain? Now, I never thought that there was a Muslim chaplain. And I did say to her, but we are of the Muslim faith. She says, that's fine. She says, we, we have a Muslim chaplain. And they called. When she came in, uh, it was the biggest relief I had because it was a, a woman, because I expected really in my head, a man. Why, why was that important to you, that, that um, this apparition of this female appeared and suddenly you thought, oh, good? Well, it relaxed me, gave me some peace because she'd know how you feel, and whereas a man might not know how I, I was feeling. But a woman, it's like you're kin and you've got more of a connection. What was she like when she came in? I mean, what was your first impressions of her? It was just like an angel walking in. It was just relief, this great big thing off my shoulders. It was like a sigh of relief. Oh, my God, you know, she's a woman. She so sympathetic. She was just, I could, she was just wonderful. It was like a, she was sent by God. It was a godsend. Was she with you fairly soon after Arif died? Yes. I, did, I didn't wait long. I, I was surprised that it it was um, not a long wait. And how long did you spend together? We spent quite a few hours. And she said, however long you want me to be here, I will be here. And we were together for quite a while, quite a few hours. I could not have gone through what I went through after his death if she hadn't have been there. Because also the thought of not being able to give him his last rites because of the COVID, she says he won't be able to go to a mosque. And I thought, oh, my God, you know. What's going to happen? He's going to be buried with uh, no rites, no prayers, no nothing. And she assured me that, no, don't worry. He will get everything done. She phoned the mosques for me and she sorted everything out that was needed to be done for him, arrangements for him to get to the mosque and 
then be buried. And all his last rites she did with me there. If she wasn't there, he wouldn't have got it. Well, that's us, Rahana, your angel, in inverted commas. Rahana, I mean, the convention in Islam is that burial should take place very quickly, perhaps within 24 hours. What kind of obstacles were you facing in these situations? Well, particularly at that time, end of March, there was just so much unknown. And what we did know at that time was that not only many funeral service directors were not available anymore, that the services were not being able to function, just like any other services, not being able to function in the same normal way. We didn't know whether our loved ones would be stored elsewhere or staying in the mortuary in the hospital for a long time. We had no clue. We just had to take each case as it came along. And at that time, what we did understand is that, luckily, because we were able to offer religious rites at the hospital, that our loved ones from the hospital that have now passed away would be able to be taken straight to the cemetery, if necessary, for burial. In normal circumstances, you would have washed uh, Arif's body, but that wasn't possible. So what did you do as as an alternative? Uh, We had a phone call um, while I was sitting with Sarah in the ward at the time, We had a phone call with the funeral directors who said that they were not washing. And I said, well, not to worry. I said, I'll do everything I can do here in terms of a dry ablution, which is another religious symbolic way of purifying oneself. And it's something that one may do as an ill person when one can't make an ablution before a prayer, for example. You you use a stone, is that right? Yes, we are asked, uh, according to the Qur'an, the holy book of Muslims, to strike something which is of the earth, the uh, natural. So in the office, I always keep some pebbles, and we just use that. And I'd explained that to Sarah, that this is an alternative that we can do. And I explained it to Sarah about what to do. And I brought up my bits and pieces, the stone, and also we use scent, I brought those bits and pieces upstairs and um, then I said to her, would you like to be able to do this for your husband? And she said, oh, I would. And that's what we did. And, oh, my Lord, for me, it was absolutely so amazing. Such a privileged place to be in, to witness how this wife of this beautiful deceased person was about and how she did do the we call it tayammam in arabic how she did this dry ablution this tayammam and it was just incredible i will never forget this day let me ask sarah having listened to that for the last couple of minutes is it like being back in the room again yes it is it's um, yes yes but I'm so grateful for Rahana for being there, for giving me the opportunity to do that for my husband. And what I'm picking up is the importance of the senses here, the smell of the oil, the touch of the mm-hmm. stone, the laying of your hand on the other person's body. Did that make death real, but also in a way final and yet almost beautiful in the sense of accepting it? It's 
terrible that he died. He shouldn't have died. But I didn't feel scared. When I was young, I always used to have this, I'm going to be scared of somebody who's died. But it was calm. He looked at peace. He, he looked very peaceful lying there. Um, and I felt as if I was giving him what he deserved at the last part of his life and that he he went with it. He didn't go missing what he was entitled to of his faith. How would you like him to be remembered? I mean, give us a flavour of the kind of man he was. He was absolutely wonderful. I was married 40 years, never had a bad word or a bad thought about anybody, always saw the good side of everything. Uh, he was very generous in time, his heart and everything. If he had uh, one penny, he would give it away without a second thought. It almost sounds like you married a saint. <laughs> I, he was. He, he yeah. He was. He um, he he was a very good man. Uh, the community here, when he passed, were all devastated that he, they couldn't come to his funeral. Well, I wanted to get onto that because I mean, you had the funeral five days after his death. Yeah, we were lucky. With the limits on numbers, that must have been very frustrating for you and your children. It was, and they asked me who who was going to come. I had to give them a number and then they would agree, but they did. So my children and their partners and my three sisters, and it was locked gates. Everybody had to congregate outside the gate. When we were let in and then we were sort of told, you've got 15 minutes to bury him, which was terrible, and putting him in the soil and having to run away. And, you know, have the gates locked. That was sad because you didn't want to leave him there. And that was not the end of it for you, was it? Because afterwards you had to spend several days in isolation, grieving yeah. in yeah. total, um, no you know, total lonely situation. That must have been very hard not to be able to hug people and have people around you. Well, we all had to stay separate at the cemetery, but we were already keeping away from the children and, her family, so it was just us two at home. And then when he went into hospital, I was on my own for 10 days. The kids, the children would bring something, leave it outside the door and go. And then I didn't see anybody because they weren't allowed, I didn't allow them to come. They, and I saw them all on the Saturday of the funeral. So for a week, I was on my own, mourning him at home. And then on the Saturday, we had to go separate ways. It was just couldn't give the kids a hug. You know, they were devastated. They needed to be consoled. We all needed to be together to be consoled, but we couldn't. It was terrible. Rohanna, just a question for you about how Sarah copes with things from this point onwards. You, I'm sure, keep in touch with people many weeks and months after they've lost a loved one. What do you say to people about dealing with that great big hole, that sense of loss in their life? We talk about the spiritual world. We talk about the hereafter. We talk about, from our religious perspective, how the life of this world is but a blink of the eye. That even if we live for a hundred years, it is nothing compared to eternal life. And because we believe in a hereafter, an eternal life, and for those of us who are people who are not evil livers and um, who are good people, we expect and hope that we're going to have a fantastic and great 
place to go to. We hope we also believe that none of us are pure and perfect and that God is merciful. That was a in a sense uh, an easier conversation to have with Sarah, but there must have been a lot of people who died who didn't have the bedrock of that faith. Mm. Um it's it's hard, isn't it, to yeah. to invoke something that you believe in when they don't share it. So what I do there is I talk to them about their beautiful memories. And I talk to them about the good things that they have in their hearts that they can hold and keep and carry that person in their hearts. And that seems to be something that helps them to be able to get through each day. There are those people who don't believe that then may ask me about, well, I know you're a religious person. I don't believe in God, but you believe in God. So what do you think is going to happen in the next life? And if somebody does ask me that, then I will share with them how I believe that God has a beautiful place for us all and how he loves and cares for every single one of us. And sometimes they love to just listen to all of that. Whether they'll ever believe it or not is up to them. My concern is only that I bring to them anything that might be uplifting for their souls, to uplift their spirits. I understand, Rahana, that it's customary to assemble a memory pack uh, to give to grieving families. In Sarah's case, what would have been in that? Okay, so this is not necessarily customary. It's actually something which is quite innovative, that different chaplains who I share supervision with in the West Midlands, we put our heads together and thought about a bereavement dignity pack. And in that pack will be that very stone if the tayemmum was performed, that dry ablution was performed, and then that becomes part of that memory as well. And in the cases where I had patients where the family were not there, I've used that stone and then I've sent it in the memory pack. So that stone is in there. Also, the scent that was used, and that's incredibly powerful because scent, as you know, has such powerful emotions within us when we smell something. For the family to then receive this and know that this was a scent that was used on my loved one, again, brings about a certain connection, even though they couldn't be there, but it brings about that connection. Also, there were two postcards as well. And on one of those cards is a beautiful verse, um, a, a hadith or a saying of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and a prayer book. And then on the inside cover, I put the date and a few loving words to Sarah and her family about her husband. And she now has that prayer book knowing that this was what was read to my loved one. Sarah, You've passed several months now since your loss, mm-hmm. um, but obviously you've got very poignant memories of your meeting with Rahana, and no doubt you've shared these memories with your children as well so oh, that they sure. feel brought into it. I tell everybody that I speak to, I say, I'd have got everything that he should have. He got it all. He wasn't missing anything before he was laid down, thanks to Rahana. So I'm deeply grateful and like to thank her for being there for me. Because she was there for both of us, my husband and for me. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both Rahana and Sarah for 
giving so much of yourselves during this very difficult time, and especially to Sarah. We know we can't bring him back, but we do send you our sincerest and heartfelt condolences, both to you and, and to your children. My name is Mark Dowd, and you've been listening to Things Unseen. This programme is produced by CTVC. And we'll end with Rahana sharing with us one of the prophetic verses that she gave to Sarah after Arif's death. Verily, the believing servant, when leaving this life and journeying to the hereafter, angels will descend upon them, their faces beaming white as if like the sun. They will have with them a shroud from the shroud of paradise and a fragrance from the fragrance of paradise. Then, within eyeshot of him or her, they will sit by. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.